Well, here's a terrific mix in this latest episode of Behind the Mic. You can find me all over social media. We've got a Facebook page. Just search Behind the Mic. On Twitter, Behind the underscore mic. Instagram, same thing. I mean, I'm everywhere, right? You know how to find me. My Twitter is, uh, well, the Behind the Mic Twitter, but also at the Radio Mic. Feel free to message me, inbox, DM, you name it. Rate, subscribe, like, share, retweets. Now, what are, Fleet now is on Twitter. You, you can send Fleets. That's their version of the Instagram story. But you're going to like this episode. And actually, we're going to break it down part one of two because my conversation with Joe Haggerty, the lead Bruins NHL writer for at Boston Hockey Now. Follow him at Hacks with Hags. I love that Twitter handle. I'm, I'm obsessed with Twitter handles, as you know. Go to bostonhockeynow.com. I've known Joe for many years. Joe used to cover the Red Sox, Massachusetts guy, terrific person, professional, does it right. I've always admired how he sticks to his guns when he's doing a live hit on TV. Unfortunately, he was let go by NBC Sports, landed on his feet, and uh, I'm happy for him. He's a great writer. A lot of the players really respect Joe. And we had a good conversation. What I like about it, and you'll enjoy this, we go back and forth between hockey and baseball because he has some fond memories of baseball. He knows I'm a baseball guy, but I love hockey as well. But a true pro in part one of my two-part conversation, Joe Haggerty on Behind the Mic. All right, Joe. Good to see you, man. How you been? Good to see you, Mike. Doing great. Uh, just waiting for, you know, hockey season to start. Uh, writing about Bruins. There's not much going on with hockey, but uh, coaching my son's mites team. It's his first nice. year playing mites. So uh, the free time with uh, the Bruins not playing in the NHL going on right now where I might not have it to coach youth hockey. I've been able to do that. So all in all, going pretty good. How about you? Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, one thing during the pandemic, it has given us time to to do a lot of things, especially for those in sports, right? Yep. Yeah, we have all that. We're usually obsessed with sports, the games, our lives are completely wrapped around it. Now we've got all this uh, extra family time. we got to figure out what to do with it. it. You know, you do appreciate it, right? Though, like, at the height of things, when you're around a professional sports team that's playing, and I know it's even more so for baseball, where, like, your whole day is dominated if there's a game going on, you yeah. know, for a long stretch. You know, with hockey, it's not quite as intense, but still, it's a long season, and you don't get to do as much as you'd like to do and having all this free time to play games, quality time with your family, like pick out hobbies. Like I found myself with free time to do hobbies and, you know, look into stuff more than I have before and go down rabbit holes, like buying things Yeah, I never have before, like all of that stuff. It's interesting what you do with your free time uh, when you have it. Yeah. For those watching on YouTube, I, I really like the, the poster in the background. Oh, thank you. We got uh star Wars over here. Nice. We've got, a Massachusetts uh, of license, Massachusetts license plates. I'm not even sure if they legally obtain those uh, license plates <laughs> or not. Ask any questions. And that's me rappelling oh, nice. down the uh, side of the Grand Hyatt in Boston to raise money for the Special Olympics. So, oh, cool. We got some fun stuff on the wall. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm happy that you landed on your feet. The, the website Boston Hockey Now is terrific, too, right? When you go on it, it's you just see all that black and gold. But I, I'm happy that during the pandemic, you were able to land your, you know, land something nice. Yeah, thanks, man. And I was too. And, you know, I knew things ended very amicably with NBC Sports Boston. I was there for 11 years. It was a great run. I had nothing but, you know, gratitude and appreciation for, for all the great stuff that came my way over those 11 years. But 
I had still covered the Bruins and you remember I was covering the Red Sox too. Yeah. I was doing that for, you know, six, seven years before I got hired by NBC sports Boston. So I had no intention of not covering the Bruins anymore. Certainly I think my days covering the Red Sox are done and I'm okay with that. Baseball is such an intense sport that you cover in the, in the summertime, but I knew my days were not going to be done covering the Bruins. And it was just a matter of, you know, going to the next step and finding the next place. Boston hockey now is a fantastic uh, landing spot. It's all things Bruins all the time. Myself and my uh, partner in crime, Jimmy Murphy, who I've been friends with for almost 20 years. Uh, now we're working together and covering the Bruins together, something we had always talked about doing before, but never had the chance to. So like really excited about that. And, you know, the one thing about Boston hockey now, and I love so much about it, but the biggest thing about it is all of these sites, and there's one in um, Pittsburgh, Dan Kerinsky, King Ersky, excuse me. He's the guy that started everything in Pitt, Pittsburgh uh, with Pittsburgh hockey now. Okay. There's one in Pittsburgh. There's one in San Jose. There's one in Long Island. You know, there's there's a bunch of them around. There's one in uh, Colorado. There's one in Vegas. And it's all hockey. Like, that's yep. all they care about. You don't have to share time with the, the basketball. You don't have to share time with the Patriots, which dominates everything in the New England sports scene, the Red Sox. This is all Bruins all the time and all hockey. And, you know, for me, that's music to my ears. That's all I want to talk about ever. So it's it's a great landing spot. I encourage people that haven't gone to bostonhockeynow.com to go there and check it out. Yeah, you know, it's one of those ideas that seems obvious that was never done because – I know people are overwhelmed now when they go to, if they want a certain sport, they don't want to navigate through it. Yep. Now if they're absolutely. Bro- they can just get it. And I, I, I'm this, you know, we, we blame younger people, but I'm just as bad. Oh yeah. With there's things. no, there's no patience for it. Right. No, no. You want to cut through everything and get to what you actually want to read. And, and the other part of it too, is like if, with Murph and I in particular, and you know, this having been involved with uh, the sea dogs and the paw Sox and the red Sox, organization for a long time that the longer somebody is covering the team the organization the more institutional knowledge they have and the more they bring to the table as far as analysis what's really going on kind of cutting through the bullcrap and the spin and telling you exactly what's happening and that's what we take our our pride in doing at Boston Hockey now you know in, in our media in all of the different sports there's been so much turnover over the last five years just because of the business that there's a lot of younger people that haven't on the, been on the beat as long uh, that yeah. are covering these teams for other media outlets. So, you know, any place like Boston Hockey Now that is going to value people that have been doing it a long time and people that give you a different level of knowledge because they've been there and they know all the players and they've been around for so long. I think you've got to have value in that. And, you know, we appreciate all the people that uh, subscribe to it and read it because they're supporting that kind of institutional knowledge that you might not get in other, uh, you know, shinier, uh, brighter uh, media outlets that are still out there. Yeah. You know, I don't think people understand like for your position, being a beat writer, you have to be fair to, to the listeners, to the view, you know, to people reading, but I I've always thought that you've done it right. And I know the players respect you. You have to go on TV and you have to say things, you go on talk shows, but you've always, one thing I admire about you, you, you hold your, you stick your guns with things. I like when you get in it with some of the personalities because <laughs> you also have to live with those guys in a way. And I know what that's like, yep. you know, you're more on the, on the cusp where you're writing for the teams, you know, you're not with the team, but there is that balance. And I've always thought you, you handled that well. Oh yeah. That's it. You know, that's the part that maybe people don't always understand Yeah, when you're, when they're reading you, when they're listening to you talk on the radio or television, it, it is such a balancing act. Like you want to have your opinions. You want to give them 
uh, the truth and the straight analysis and tell them exactly what's going on. But there's definitely a level like whenever you're a beat writer, it's also about the relationships that you build yeah. Yeah. with the players, with the executives, with the coaches and that sort of delicate balancing act. But I, I'll tell you this. The one thing that all of those people respect and uh, respond to is knowing that you're telling the truth and you're going to yes. be upfront about it and you're going to be accountable when you say or write or do something, you know, like yep. if you say something critical, if you write something critical, the thing the players hate most is if you drop a bomb like that and then you disappear for two weeks, like you're yeah. just parachuting in, dropping bombs everywhere. And then you go on to your next thing and you, you know, you're not in the Bruins dressing room for a while. And, and that with the Bruins, that can happen fairly often because you will have columnists from the, the big boys that will come in write a quick piece or a controversial piece and then they'll be on to you know going with the Red Sox on a road trip for two weeks or going to cover Patriots games and you don't see them for a while yeah and, and I think the one thing you earn over a long period of time is when you're there every single day and you're there if they have a problem with you you can go over and talk to them about it and you know I've, I've had plenty of run-ins when it comes to that and, and it's always respectful and you have a dialogue and then and then you move on you know and, and that's the way it works I mean I, I can remember Bruins wise, I can remember uh, Sean Thornton and like threatening to break my arm or leg or whatever it was. And like, you know, we had a good relationship. So it, there was some level of joking to it. It wasn't completely yeah. serious, but he had a tone when he said it. So I knew, I knew he meant business and that he was pissed about something that I, I think I had said something on the air that he didn't like. And so he gave it back to me. Uh, you know, I'd mentioned he, he had an injury and he was disputing that he had the injury and he said, well, maybe I'll give you that injury. And I was like, okay, <laughs> you know what I mean? But we, you go back and forth. I remember um, you may, you may remember this uh, when I was with the Red Sox and I reported on um, John Lackey and remember when he was in, I forget where it was, but he was, you know, he had stuffed a few beers down his pocket when he was walking out of the clubhouse. Yeah. Yeah. in Cle Cleveland and they had lost like five out of six it was the Bobby Valentine year they were circling down the drain like they were in a bad way on that team and it, it looked to me like and I was just that at that time I was covering mostly the Bruins and I was just covering the Red Sox for a few weeks at a time but I'd covered the Red Sox for so many years and I'd been on the road and all that so I understood what it was supposed to look like what it looked like under Grady Little and Francona and now what it was looking like under Bobby Valentine and it was clear to me, like watching the, the guys didn't care whether they were winning and losing and Lackey no. was injured, wasn't even playing on that team. And was it like, you know, stuffing beers down his pocket, like it was an open bar after the game was over to go back to the hotel. So I wrote something about that, not thinking much of it. And it created this big uh, stir uh, because of the, the, you know, the, I believe it was the chicken and beer thing that people talked about that had happened the year before. And that turned into um, the next day, this huge dressing room wide discussion between me, Dustin Pedroia, Josh Beckett, Carl Crawford. Like it was the Jeez. entire Red Sox dressing room that was basically coming at me and we were having a back and forth about it. And I'll never forget afterwards, David Ortiz pulled me aside and we had a conversation about it. And I was like, Poppy, you and I both know some of the stuff that's going on here right now shouldn't be happening and would have never happened under Tito. And he like basically agreed with me, but he was trying to like steady the ship and keep things right there. Yeah. Uh, but I, I totally remember that clear as day as one of those times where it was just this complete, like just crap storm of stuff that we were talking on the beat. And, you know, that kind of stuff happens all the time. And, and you know, they don't 
teach you in uh, journalism class how to deal with stuff like that. That's more of like a real world sort of navigational thing. And having experiences of going through that, having discussions with players that are pissed off at you, like uh, figuring out ways to come to some kind of a, you know, detente uh, with issues like that when players are really mad about something you've done, it gives you uh, a world of experience on how to deal with that moving forward. And there were so many things on the Red Sox beat because it's so intense, because there's so many reporters, because like Yankees Red Sox is crazy, the amount of people that are there and, and what you're dealing with. And it's like a spectacle to itself, especially in the era that I covered when it was, you know, 03 to 2010, oh, yeah. 2011, when, you know, Red Sox were huge and they were, they were basically rock stars. That particular experience gave me so much that I was able to use in covering the Bruins as well and just day-to-day -day journalism. Uh, it's amazing. But, you don't, you know, it, to young journalists out there, you don't get that from going to uh, being a communications major, writing for your college newspaper, you know, majoring in journalism, whatever. You get that when you actually go out and, and cover the beat and deal with these day-to-day -day situations because there is nothing that prepares you for walking into the Red Sox uh, clubhouse or the Bruins dressing room for the first time and seeing all the guys that used to watch on TV and now they're up close and personal and right in your face. And I'm sure you can uh, relate to that too. Like it yeah. takes a little while to get over the surreal feeling of like covering the people that used to watch on TV as a huge sports fan. Yeah. Then that's great uh, stuff. You know, Bob McGilligan, of course, oh, right. Yeah. The blue. So Bob and I, Bob's, my best friend, mentor, he got me into baseball. I interned for him in 97. That's how I got into this. He taught me right off the bat, you need to make yourself available. So I didn't know yep. when I, I was doing Legion baseball before, but to what you're saying and to people that are young watching this, he taught me that, that you have to, to be, he, he showed me how that you have to be able to talk to the guys and that you got to do this, but you're right. And it's a balancing act. And, but I, but I think what you said though, being honest is, is the, is the best policy, right? It's Lester bangs from almost famous, honest and yeah. unmerciful. That's really, <laughs> that's really what you have to do and what you have to live by. And, and when you do that, like the players pick up on it, they understand and they respect that. And they get that that's what you're about. And, you yeah. know, as long as you're not trying to make a spectacle of yourself and you're not writing stuff that's simply not true, or you just, you know, screaming out for attention, the players know, they know when they don't play well, they know when they deserve criticism, like up, especially hockey, there is as accountable as you get as far sure. as professional athletes go, you know, so they're not going to have a problem as long as what you're writing is truthful. And that's always what you go for. And above and beyond that, you and I both know, Mike, being from, New England that New England sports fans don't buy into the bull crap either. You know, no. they, they, they can see right through somebody that's just a carnival barker looking for attention or somebody that's, you know, looking to, uh, you know, have hot takes and doesn't really ground it in anything substantial. They get that and they move on and they ignore it. You have to have truth at the beginning and end of everything you do. I, I remember I was the first one in the Bruins beat that started talking about Claude Julian getting fired. And I, hated talking about it because I love Claude. He's an awesome guy. Always treated me great, great human being, best coach the Bruins have ever had in their history. But I had known from what I had heard within the organization, from what I was watching on the ice, from the circumstances of what was going on, that he was in trouble and they probably wasn't going to make it through the year. And I maybe, I guess I was the only one that knew that because everybody else was saying, you can't fire Claude. Who else are you going to hire? Like, you yeah. can't make that kind of move. Like, who? What, what's going to, you know, that's ridiculous. Whereas I knew, I knew it wasn't. And I knew, you know, Bruce Cassidy was put on that coaching staff at the start of the year, ostensibly to replace Claude when they decided to make the move and fire him. And, you know, it wasn't just for show and decoration. That was the first year he was on that staff after being in Providence uh, with the Providence Bruins 
all those years before. So, you know, it ended up happening and it looked, it made it seem like I, you know, knew something that everybody else didn't, but like you, you know, when you have stuff like that information like that, and you have instincts, like I said, where you've been doing it so long, you can kind of look at things and say, okay, I, I can see what's going on here. And I see the pieces falling into place and this is what's going to happen. Yeah. You know, you use all of that stuff together uh, when you report and when you analyze things and, and, you know, you come to conclusions like that, like I did with Claude and, you know, by the time it actually happened, people seemed to be starting to wake up that that was what was going on. And it was a difficult decision. It was not something the Bruins did easily because Claude won them a cup and he was awesome there for a decade. Uh, but it was something that had to happen. And that's part of the, the truth telling in sports and the cold, hard uh, business aspect of professional sports. Yeah. I, I think that we, we definitely in, in the NFL with coaches, there, there's definitely value there. I think that what they do is huge, but with hockey, it's sometimes not talked about how important a coach is, you know, baseball, they kind of, ma- they call the manager because it's the, they manage a clubhouse. We know, I mean, X's and yep. O's, I think many can do that, but there well, especially a, in this day and age, right? Sure. With baseball, yeah. it's like the front office with the analytics. They're basically Computer. like calling everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, every move down to X, Y, and Z is, is mapped out for the manager. A lot of them anyway. It seems like it's becoming less of a manager dominant sport all the time. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember when Josh Reddick went on a radio show and said that Billy Bean was making a lineup every day, which <laughs> I, I, he played in Portland. So I, I like him and I just yeah. cringe like. I like uh, Reddick too. He was a free spirited guy. Yeah. I mean, it's true. I mean, I know a lot of that does go on, but, but, but hockey coaches are, you know, I, I think we undervalue them. I mean, they're, they're huge. They're out there skating. You know, they're, they're a big part of, of that, of the team. And it shows even at the highest level, how those guys need to be led. Yeah. The interesting thing about hockey coaches, there's a couple of interesting things, but one of them is just that the personality definitely trickles down to the players sure. and how they play. And, you know, the thing with Claude was like, he was an emotional guy and he would ride the roller coaster of emotion more even so than the players would sometimes. And Mm. I think that sometimes manifested itself in the way that they played. Sometimes they would be very tight uh, in big games. And I think that was kind of a trickle down from Claude. Sometimes they would get carried away with things. That was a trickle down from Claude. They would certainly play conservative. A lot of the time that was a trickle down from Claude. Like they, you know, the players uh, tend to manifest a lot of the personalities of, of the coach, yeah. you know, but they also played very disciplined. They stuck to their systems. They didn't make a lot of m- mental mistakes on the ice. They would uh, counterattack on other opponents' mistakes. Like they played a very smart game. It's, it's a give and take um, obviously. And it worked out for a long time, but you could see towards the end that Claude's conservative nature of play and um, his unwillingness sometimes to trust young players and to put a lot of trust in them, you know, became issues because the Bruins were uh, sort of morphing into a more skilled team and a more draft and development team with young players. And that became a sort of a philosophical difference between the two. The other interesting thing about um, coaches in hockey is just the disposable nature of them. Yeah. Like we didn't see it here and we haven't seen it in a while, honestly, because Claude was here for like a decade, won a cup. Bruce Cassidy has done a great job. He's been in the playoffs every year since he took over as one of now a Jack Adams, um, you know, considered one of the best coaches in the league. So for the last 15 years, there hasn't been any turnover here. Just once two coaches in 15 years, pretty good. But you see in the NHL, I think even more than the other sports that there's a high level of turnover and there's a disposable aspect to the hockey coaches. I think you see more in hockey than in other sports that coaches can get fired to spark a team, to change yep. momentum, 
Like if a team's not going anywhere during a season, I don't know that you see that as much in the other sports, but you absolutely see it in hockey. And the other thing is I think you see in hockey as much as any other sport players start to tune out the coach after a while too. Like if they've been there too long, players decide, you know, let's say John Tortorella is a great coach, but he's well-traveled and he's been a bunch of different places because he asks his players to block tons of shots, to play hard, you know, to, to play a really painful, deliberate, old school style of hockey. Like players start to get tired of that after a couple of years, especially if they haven't won a cup and they start to tune out and not listen to it or not play that way anymore. And you see that happen, I think, in hockey more than any other sport where that happens. And then you've got to make a move because the coach has kind of lost the dressing room. So, I, yeah. you know, there's a lot of interesting dynamics between coaches and players and the way it works in the NHL. But, you know, I've considered myself extremely lucky. Um, you know, Mike Sullivan was a pretty good guy. That was the first head coach uh, when I covered the Bruins. Uh, I liked him. He was a very straightforward guy. He was a Marshfield guy. Uh, Dave Lewis was only here a year. It was a big mistake by Peter Shirelli to hire him. He was a very nice guy. He was actually pretty funny, uh, but it was clear that he just did not have the voice of the players in the dressing room. And then that led to Claude. Claude, fantastic guy, um, you know, knew us all really well. There was a lot of give and take. I remember, and I was thinking about this recently because um, Johnny Boychuk retired. He was yeah. like my all-time favorite player to cover, great personality, fun guy. Like we're friends away from the ice. I'll text him back and forth. He, you know, we, we keep in touch. And uh, he, I remember when he got traded, the day he got traded, I had to go and do TV. It was a shocker. It was the end of the preseason. I think it was the last preseason game of the year. He was traded either before or during the game. I think it was before. He got traded the Islanders for two second round picks. And, uh, you know, I'm usually down in the, in the, the press conference room with Claude after the game is over. Uh, but sometimes I had to go do TV for NBC Sports Boston. So I had to do TV right after the game was over to talk about the Boychuk trade. So I wasn't in the dressing or in the press conference room afterwards when Claude talked about the game. First thing Claude said when everybody filed in for the press conference is he goes, oh, where's Haggerty? Is he off crying somewhere because his boy Boychuk just got traded? What's going on here? <laughs> and that's how he like started the whole thing with the press conference, you know, because everybody knew that Boychuk and I were pretty tight. Yeah. Um, so like it's that's it you know Claude knew all the reporters and had built up a rapport with us and could do that kind of stuff over a period of time and you know being around uh, sports teams that like when you get to that level as a coach or a manager when you have a really good collegial relationship with the media like that it just benefits everybody and it yeah. really works really well and I think it's part of the reason so many more media people really stayed loyal to Claude to the very end because he was so good to us. And he was such a pleasure to deal with. And same with Bruce Cassidy. You know, we talk about truth. Like that guy uh, is, a, he's allergic to telling lies. Like he just physically, I think, is incapable of telling lies, which, you know, is a very difficult thing if you're a head coach. Sure. And you're out there transmitting the team's message to, you know, give you the straight truth all the time and to just shy away from like any level of deception whatsoever. But like such a straight up guy, such an innovative coach, very creative um, you know, we'll, we'll give you a, a great answer to any question you ask, loves the game of hockey. Like I consider myself really blessed to have dealt with the coaches that I've dealt with in this era, the Bruins, because there was a time you were dealing with high turnover, like crazy stuff going on, whether it was, yeah. you know, the, the Sutters, whether it was Pat Burns, Milbury, Terry O'Reilly, yep. you know, all of those guys that kind of shuffled through before we got to this era of, you know, longevity with the coaches. I consider myself really lucky 
um, not only in the Bruins to deal with the coaches I've dealt with, but to work with Tito for as long as I did with the Red Sox, who, you know, had his things. He definitely didn't like it when your cell phone went off in his press conferences and he would let you have it if it did. But like, he was another guy that was a great storyteller, would give you great answers. And, and you know, you you understood you were in the presence of a manager that really had his stuff together yeah. uh, when you were working with him. It's it's pretty cool to watch. Yeah. the And the guys that if they bust on you, too, that's that's a good sign, right? It is. Yeah, it definitely is. You know, it, they don't bust on nobody's mic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'll tell myself. You know, you know, it's interesting, though. I remember going to spring training in 2011 and it, it there was something that was not right. Oh, yeah. And I knew and this is just, you know, for people who are watching this, it might be fans like there is a feeling you can get that was they were like already deemed the greatest team. And guys weren't travel like guys weren't going like an hour away to games. And I remember being like, this is this is not going to go. I mean, everyone knew. Yep. I think people saw that coming for a while. Yep. And then when it all that happened at the end of the year, and I, you just go back because I've heard the opposite. I've heard guys say in spring training, they knew right away we were going to be a great team. And you think, why would spring training have anything to do with it? Then you realize those guys are together for what? 60 days some i mean they get there now at the end of january yep and if you just form that downward pattern you know it's unfortunate what happened but you know i think in the end it was probably good for tito to get out of there right yeah no i think so he needed a change look he's, yeah he's in cleveland now that's exactly where he wanted to be like yep. that's a dream job for him you know his old man uh you created a legacy there and now he's you know, following in his dad's footsteps, we absolutely adored, you know, would talk about all the time when he was managing the Red Sox. So I, yeah. it definitely worked out well for He's going to be a Hall of Famer sure. for his management, manager, managerial career. There's no question about it. You know what? And you're right. It, it definitely, you got a country club feeling, you know, that year, like, you know, things were definitely not right. Um, and it was funny to me, even more like for me, it was stark the next year with Bobby V like I remember a few times like he would need to ask the media relations people next to him about injury updates for players and what was going on with players and Jeez. simple stuff like that that a manager should know off the top of his head he would ask uh, it was like Pam Ganley a lot of times was there great person still yep. works for the Red Sox good Burlington girl uh, and he would uh, <laughs> be asking her like updates on the injured players. And I'm sitting there thinking, did you ever see Tito not know what was going on with an injured player and have to ask his media relations people like for updates and what's happening? Like, what is this guy doing? And you would never see him in the dressing room at all before or after a game. It was basically like he was holed up in his manager's office and you would only see him like when the game was going on and then you would go in there and talk to him post game and then that was it and he would disappear. And, you know, I don't know if like, cause he hadn't managed in a while, the game had passed him by. I don't know if he was used to that being the way it was way back when, but like, it was so stark to me to go from like Tito for the duration of when he was with the Red Sox and he was on top of everything and really had his finger on the pulse of everything that was going on to a guy that was so far removed from it. He couldn't even tell you like what was going on with an injured pitcher in a, in a rehab situation, you know, which yeah. is I think the bare minimum that a manager or a head coach ha should know you know, when he's out there talking to the media every day. And I was just like, wow, this is really different. And this, this is above and beyond like Bobby Valentine trying to claim he like, you know, started the rap sandwich and like, <laughs> you know, revolutionized baseball and like the little egomaniacal trips he used to go on. This was just simple. Like, 
are you doing the job that you were hired to do here stuff? And you knew they were in trouble at that point, even, you know, before you got to some of the players in the, in the clubhouse. All right. That will wrap up part one. Part two is next week. Remember to stay safe. Listen, I don't like to do this, but I feel like I have to. If we want things to get back to normal, damn it, we need to work at it, okay? I get people want things to be normal, but complaining about it first will not change the situation and wanting things that, you know, willing things. You know, people are out there, I'm just going to keep doing things because I'm not going to screw up my life. But you understand by doing that more, not wearing masks, going out in large groups, you're just delaying everything. And I feel like we're, we're in this part of the, uh, the time period where I don't think people are smart enough to understand that. You have to deal. This is adversity, big time ad- adversity, and deal with it. Get over yourself, first of all. And we need to work together. All right? Stop it. You know, if I was the president of the United States, I'd just tell people to stop it. Grow up. Talk, I mean, talk like that. You know, do it nicely. That's why I'd never be president. All right. As always, peace and love.